people that are often the most um, dogmatic, the most vocal about their way, are often just afraid to admit what they don't know. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that go off topic. Today I explore the notion of how philosophy can improve your life. These days philosophical ideas have a way of reaching us in a second-hand way, often in the form of self-help advice. But as today's guest Monica McCarthy has discovered, sometimes it's more effective to go straight to the source, straight to these original philosophers in their own context. Monica is the host of a live event series and podcast called The Happier Hour, Philosophy to Help Life Suck Less, which aims to explore how philosophy need not be an academic abstraction, but can be useful for normal people figuring out how to live their own best lives. Monica is an actress with Broadway TV and film credits, and while the guests of her Happier Hour events are often experts in philosophy, she gears the conversation towards concrete topical issues. Now, we cover a lot of ground in our own conversation, including the fact that philosophy itself is a very old and complicated topic. Stoicism, for example, is undergoing a renaissance right now, thanks to folks like Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday, but Stoicism is just one part of a much larger and time-honored conversation. Monica is a big traveler who's visited more than 50 countries on six continents, and travel itself often comes up as a metaphor in our discussion. Monica actually came to embrace philosophy after what she calls her eat, pray, love phase during travel, after the end of a relationship. And during this time, she discovered that a lot of self-help marketed towards women wasn't that helpful, at least not compared to philosophy. Let's listen in. Was there a moment when, either through Orlando de Botton, that you realized that philosophy was giving you something that sort of helped self-help and other venues weren't in your post-relationship life? Yeah, well, so interesting enough, actually, when I started reading, was reading more about that, I ended up talking to somebody who's now a friend of mine, Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a psychologist uh, and psychology professor and author, and I was like, do you know, is, is there such thing as a philosophy or like a yeah, like a philosophy therapy. <laughs> and hmm. he was like, actually, I do know someone, and he had a good friend who was coming, her background was in philosophy, but there's a there's actual training that you can go to become uh, more of like, to use philosophy via therapy. And so we had Skype, she's based in Canada, and we had Skype sessions for a while, for maybe like a year, and that's when I started, was interested in maybe writing a book about about this, and we just collaborated a lot and started any problem that I was dealing with, approaching it from more of a philosophical stant, slant, meaning one, the actual process of doing philosophy, of actually entering into Socratic dialogue, which is essentially just really trying to question everything that you state as fact, um, but then also learning to use different uh, philosophical ideas in different ways. So right now, everybody is very into stoicism. That you know, it's like you've got Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday, and all of a sudden, every male entrepreneur is like I'm a stoic. And athletes. <laughs> and athletes, yes. Yeah. And and here's the thing, stoicism is amazing. Yes, it completely makes sense if you're an athlete why you would be into stoicism. But it doesn't then explain like if you're an artist or a painter, you don't know too many stoics who are into that, you know? So there's different philosophies exist for different reasons. And I feel like m people, most people like are very ardently defendant of whatever one resonates with them. You've talked about how there's very different schools of philosophy, mm -hmm. and I think there's some people who might study Stoicism because of someone like Tim Ferriss and not realize that it's part of a much 
broader body and say argument of work surrounding philosophy. So let's go back to square one. What is philosophy? You know, how would you define it? So technically, philosophy is made up of two words: philo, meaning love, and sophie, meaning Sophia, meaning wisdom. I like to think of philosophy, though, as it's um, it's not it's not like a, it's not a test of what we know. It's challenging what we think we know. So a lot of people are very intimidated by philosophy because they think it, it somehow is this this test. Like you either know what Sartre had to say or you don't, and therefore you mm. know philosophy or you don't. And I don't see I don't see it that way uh, at all. Um, and so the the reason why there are all these philosophical movements throughout history is because philosophy is uh, you know are is related to the society and the times and the zeitgeist in which. We live so nothing, no idea came out of a vacuum. It both consists of what was popular, what the philosophical idea was at the time, uh, as well as the problems that they're that we're currently facing. So it becomes much. I love like one of the things I do on my podcast is I often will in like the sort of opening monologue, if you will, just go through like a quick like here's the history of doubt from philosophical perspective, or here's the history of love, you know, or here's the history of creativity because. It really is shocking for most people to realize, wait, the way we think about this now as a given, as a known, as truth, 100 years ago, that's not what we thought. So what are the odds that 100 years from now, that's what we're going to think? Well, and then there's religion, too. I don't know how much you've dug into it, but religion is another framework by which we discuss life and the world and our goals. Uh, and there's an extent to which, at least in the West, there's been sort of a decline in religion. Uh, and so the conversation has gotten weirder and it's interesting, you know, we're, we're in a podcast discussion right now and you sort of grudgingly became a podcaster after <laughs> doing live events. But this, this, is, this has changed the way we talk about or especially listen to things. There's also social media that we touched on. So what do you think are the defining characteristics of this age? How, compared to 20 or 100 years ago, how are, is the context of the era we're in now affecting how this conversation comes out to begin with? Well, it's interesting because you just mentioned religion. And I think that, one of, that it, one of the defining characteristics of the, area, of the era that we live now is that we, we're living in a time when there's a decline of gatekeepers and there is a rise of information. So to use a very Kierkegaardian phrase, like anxiety, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom this is where we're living in right now. People are, are like, why are we all so anxious? You know, and everyone's solving it with a, or frequently it's being solved with a pill. Um, and it, and we, you know, we describe as ourselves as like, you know, busy, busy as a new black kind of thing. Um, but it makes sense when you look at it from the point of view that for most of human history, we lived like as serfs versus aristocrats. Like most of us weren't trying, didn't have the, didn't have the options available to us. So we knew our place. Uh, in in the hierarchical structure, and then we had born in the village. Yeah, you're probably gonna die in exactly. The village. And yeah. then uh, and despite what most you know past lives therapists will tell you, like you probably weren't Queen Elizabeth. We probably were <laughs> mostly serfs. <laughs> although I was told Queen Anne, which I'm like that. No one wants to be. That did not go well for her. Anyways, I digress. You were shoveling uh, shit, and you were shoveling <laughs> shit. Were yeah, shoveling exactly. Shit. Um, so there's that. Then you have religion. So which is again fascinating to look at how that uh, affected philosophy but if you just look at it from the point of view now that most you know the most popular uh religious like when you go to like religious studies they're now saying the most 
most popular thing is to be a nun, which not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, means people that don't subscribe to any religion, and they're even the ones studying religion, which is fascinating. So we don't have our belief system dictated to us now. We're not saying, like, if you do this, this, and this, you're good. If you do this, this, and this, you're bad. It's not so clear-cut. So now you've got, we're not sure what our role is. We're not sure what our values are. And then on top of that, with the phone in our pocket, we can Google anything. And the challenge is, yes, we can get answers, more answers than we ever had before, but we're going to get more conflicting answers than we ever had before. So now the, the challenge is we have to become philosophers ourselves in a way that we have not had to before. We have to learn to ask better questions and ask more questions than we ever have. I mean, we used to be punished. We would be beheaded if we asked questions before, but now you know, we are in danger of spreading false news at best uh, and arguably destroying the world at worst. So philosophy, important. Yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. And I grew up religious. Did you grow up religious? I grew up in a weird situation where my mother was raised Catholic, my dad was raised Jewish. They were both atheists, but then really liked when I became involved, like I went to like I said, I grew up in Orange County, so it's very Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was like a goody, very goody two shoes. And actually, though, my form of rebellion was I almost married a Mormon, like my senior year. Whoa. But then that was, did not go over well. So I had a very, my way of rebelling was very different. What did you grow up? Well, I grew up Lutheran, mm. but very mainline Lutheran, not evangelical. Um, most people probably don't know what mainline is, but it's sort of a very traditional liturgical Lutheran church, um, sort of tied to immigrant communities is usually German or Swedish mm. immigrants became be, became Lutheran but I remember being um, attracted to the book of Ecclesiastes and then later when I learned philosophy I realized that Ecclesiastes is sort of the existential book of the Bible you know that somehow the existentialism in the Bible appealed to me in a way that maybe some other more historical or narrative parts of the Bible didn't and so I don't know. I didn't think about it until this interview that I don't know if, if, if it was that moment in the 90s where I suddenly was, was attracted to the existentialism of the book of Ecclesiastes. But um, yeah, we, we are in a place where there's no prescribed way of, um, of believing. And we could, we could be born in one village and live in a city on the other side of the world. And, and freedom is great, but it's also complicating. How do people find philosophy? And do they know it when they do? That's a really good question. I've never, I've never been asked that. I have been asked, and this is related. And one of the, one of the shows, one of the questions somebody said was, um, "I feel like I can't enter into philosophy because I'm not an expert in it, and so what do I do?" And I said, "Listen, I majored in theater. I technically should not have a show on philosophy, but I'm not proclaiming myself as the philosophy expert. I'm." claiming myself as somebody who's very interested in how philosophy can help us. And so starting with just a deep desire to learn and to, it, it is the best way to get started in philosophy. Uh, I don't think it, you know, if you're going into philosophy because you think it is going to be there the, for a specific end, like you think it's going to be the hack, the trick or whatever mm -hmm. is definitely not how I'd recommend, even though I'm seeing it prescribed that way in certain Certain places, uh, but it's an interesting parallel. The hack, philosophical is a hack. Yeah, actually, I did. It's not a very good TEDx talk. It was, uh, but I did a TEDx talk um, 
before, it was before I had the happier hour, and I would, I, there's a lot that I stand by. Was it by, in Independence, it was, Kansas? It was in Independence, I'm, Kansas. I saw that when That's I was preparing right. for this. It's like, That's really? Right. Independence, Kansas? Oh my gosh, there was a whole thing where I like panicked and I like rewrote the talk before, and I was the very first one, and then it sounds like somebody was talking through the whole time, but it wasn't. It was like a mic on in the background that you only hear in the video. Anyways, I digress. But the, the reason, the only reason why I mention it is because, please don't watch it, is because <laughs> it was... Look uh, in the show notes, people. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the theme was of the event was uh, technology. And so my talk was uh, philosophy, the life hack of the future. But I was doing it in a tongue-in-cheek way, sort of like I do with the happier hour of like, it's not really a, a hack. Like the hack is you're going to have to like question everything for the rest of your life. <laughs> and it's not something that you do... It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be happy after it or successful after it or anything like that. It actually, it actually in some ways, is it can open up a lot of things that make you unhappy for the time, at the time. It's sort of like how I'm in psychotherapy. Like It's not great to learn more about what my unconscious is doing and how it affects me. But if we're, if we're arguing for the examined life, you know, as Socrates described, then, then it is something that we have to partake in. So if somebody is interested, I say, for, you know, first the mindset is extremely important for wanting to be interested in philosophy. And then I see, like, do not start with trying to understand Wittgenstein. Philosophers don't really understand Wittgenstein. You know, there are definitely <laughs> philosophers that are easier to read than others. I think that's partly why the Stoics are quite popular, uh, but the existentialists as well. Uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir is a wonderful one to read right now, particularly in like the sort of like post, entering sort of the post Me Too era, but identity, not to, but not just for gender, but just in like creating your own identity, who we are. So starting with the, those that are more readable. And then now there are enough people like the, there's the, the book um, Existentialist at the Cafe by Sarah Blakewell became very popular where it's about philosophers or the school of life. Inter I actually am now a- Is that Alain de, de so Baton? The, yeah, so Alain de Baton. So, and, and even he, like he's controversial. Some philosophers will say, oh, he's too philosophy light. Um, and that's fine. They're allowed to have their opinion. I know that it's helped me, and if you go, when, and oftentimes when I'm researching a philosopher, because keep in mind whenever I do any episode, I'm starting for the most part from scratch in terms of my knowledge base, I will absolutely watch the School of Life video on Karl Popper or whoever, uh, if, they, if they have one. Um, it's just that I don't do only that. So that's just the only caveat is, you know, when you are reading people who write about the philosophers and not directly the philosophers that it's helpful to have more than one source i'm a big fan just like the creator of the good place where he's like i'm a i'm a wikipedia philosopher <laughs> you know like that is a great place start there start i've there. heard you mention that before yeah. that's, that's a fun thing for you to admit you know that's basically saying um, i'm not here to talk down on you about philosophy but i'm here to explore the questions yeah because uh, well, what part so partly why i ended up not going the phd route was realizing that I was going to have to be super, super laser specific about not just which movement, which philosopher, which idea of that philosopher I wanted to spend my time on for the next seven years. And while I think it's wonderful that there are people that do that, I'm actually not anti-academic philosophy. It's not what I was particularly interested in about philosophy. I like being a generalist. I like learning about a different philosopher, or now it's really two philosophers a month and about what they think. Um, and to enough to have a conversation about it and 
then some I want to learn more about, and some I'm like, okay, I see. I that's interesting what they uh, contributed. They, it's not like my not going to be my sort of like Jiminy Cricket. Well, I do eventually want to get to your pantheon. You know, at a time again when when the Stoics, you know, are are a big deal. Like what your take home has been. But I'm curious. <clears throat> this was a question I was going to say for later, but I may as well ask it now. Where should people start if they if they don't want to be too cerebral and heavy with their philosophy, how can they get started in a way that's more accessible but is actually has some grist and some, some meaning? So I know some people are going to roll their eyes at this, but like, watch The Good Place. Like, honestly, they, every episode is Where can you filled find with it? philosophy. It's NBC. Okay. Yeah, I, it's I, series I on NBC. It. Huh. Yeah, it's, re, it's, it's great. And, uh, and each one has, and now what they're doing is they're recognizing that people are super interested, actually, in the uh, philosophical ideas they bring up. And they consult with actual academic philosophers for the show. So they, they had an episode on the trolley problem, et cetera, et cetera. And now they've started creating episode like YouTube videos with like cartoons explaining what that philosophy like or philosopher uh, was about and then and then go to like okay well that's interesting so they refer to the trolley problem and then they've got this video explaining the trolley problem now I'm gonna like Google trolley problem and read what Wikipedia has to say and now I'm gonna look what like the Stanford encyclopedia has to say and now I'm going to actually read you know what what it, how it actually contributed to the philosophical canon. So it's sort of this rabbit hole process uh, that you can go down. But something like that, something like the School of Life certainly has lots of resources. Like something where you're literally investing three minutes watching a YouTube video on, you know, on Sartre, and then there's so much information after that. But it's first seeing like, am I actually interested, is this interesting to me? Because People are busy and people aren't going to be like suddenly, you know, inclined to sit down and read about a philosophy or a philosopher that they feel like doesn't apply to their lives. Now my little like devil on my shoulder is like, well, we can learn from pretty much all of them uh, and at least learn how they've affected sort of the current trends in philosophy or your current beliefs. And I find that to be really really interesting. Is there a current philosophical conversation having, right? I mean, we think of Socrates or maybe the most recent person is Nietzsche or something, you know, or de Beauvoir, you know. Um, is there a philosophical conversation happening right now? Well, it's interesting. So one of the main points of contention and morality right now that we're heading in towards is like AI. Uh, so a lot of these sort of think tanks are employing philosophers to take part and to have a say uh, in what, you know, what, what we should or should not be doing in terms of uh, scientific advances. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's a big part of it for that. And then we also live in times, you know, where, you know, Stoicism was born, for example, like uh, during Nero. Like Nero, Nero was this emperor, he was not a good guy, you know, it was pretty rough. Rome was pretty much like burning to the ground and uh, people were scared and they didn't know, um, they felt like they had no control in their lives. And so stoicism is, it's not, we don't, it's not how we use the term now, it's not about somebody who just is like devoid of feeling, it's very much about mental fortitude and how what we can control uh, within our own minds when we can't control anything outside of our, our being. So it makes sense to me that right now in the era that we live with number 45 that it's like, 
a lot of Americans are starting to become interested in stoicism. Now they're also interested in it because it's we're also living this uh, time of like pursuing greatness and uh, and mental toughness for that. So we see we see it from that route. But then also existentialism because existentialism is you know came out of after the war in France and where people were like what is what is the meaning everyone is dying everybody is being sent off to the battlegrounds we d Europe doesn't look the same as it ever did before and so the answer is sort of similar to stoicism in that it's saying we ha we do hold the reins to our own you know our own happiness but for them it was different it was like we have to create the life is actually meaningless and it's up to you, you to create meaning and then just to commit to the action, whether it's you're rolling that boulder up over and over and over again, like the myth of Sisyphus, or not. So it makes sense to me that existentialism and stoicism, for example, are super popular, and then a lot of the, the AI morality questions. Are there any other philosophies that you're aware of that are sort of undergoing a renaissance right now? Well, there's renaissance for like the philosophy world, and then there's renaissance mm. for like the you know the popular, the popular obviously world. stoicism has a popular renaissance right yes now. yes very and that is mostly due to ryan and uh, ryan holiday and to tim ferris who both largely read and uh massimo piglucci who was my very first guest on the happier hour and mm. now we're good friends so there's a great episode actually on it was on resolutions uh that that massimo was was on there but uh you know philosophers love hume david hume has become very popular again uh, because he was so he was a Scottish Enlightenment uh, philosopher and his whole thing was really that you know philosophy up until now has been so focused on reason that we're these really that we make decisions based on reason and logic and he was like y'all no reason is a slave to passions I think was the, is like the pretty much a direct quote and the idea that we actually are much more emotional beings than we give credit for and that storytelling is uh, is really how we uh, spread ideas. And hmm. so it makes sense also that Hume would be popular today. Plus, he's fun and funny writer. I think that's another thing. You know, Montaigne in certain circles is very popular because he's funny. He's a good writer. Some of these, uh, you know, Kant is really hard to read. Doesn't mean he's, his ideas aren't pervasive, but for the average person to pick up a book, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot. You use the term life hack, uh, and there's so many things you can hack in this day and age, but one of them is travel hack. So this feels like a good time to bring in travel as sort of a metaphor for philosophy, and it ties in to a lot of what we've talked about, including that you know the, the, the certainties of yesterday versus the uncertainties of now and the technology that can, can accompany you uh, on a journey. Um, and so how, I mean, clearly I have you know, I wrote a book that has a lot of philosophy in it about travel, but how would you see, where do you see travel dovetailing with philosophy and philosophy being a useful thing for travel and vice versa? I think, and I'm, I know that I didn't make this up because everyone steals from somewhere else, but this idea of the landscape of the mind being sort of similar, a, a metaphor for the landscape that we experience when we travel and this idea of this entering into the unknown, you know, that we, that we have to be willing to be, get uncomfortable and we have to actually do something. Like we have to actually, you have to actually get on a plane to travel or get in a car or you can't, you can't just travel in your imagination per it's not se. not passive. 
it's not passive, just like philosophy is actually not passive. I actually see philosophy as a very rebellious act uh, and and in some ways travel travel in its I don't want to say purest form because I don't want to I don't want to make it so precious but uh, to to be willing to go somewhere where you don't speak the language where you don't you have to surrender a certain amount of control uh, there, there's so many metaphors with that and with learning to be more Socratic and, and ask questions of others and really listen to, your, to others and to your surroundings. Um, there was a great, it's funny because you had Andrew McCarthy on your show and I met Andrew before and, uh, and he quoted Nietzsche, who David also quoted in, uh, in my episode on travel with him. Uh, and which is about you know to travel is to be afraid or something like that. Well, that's Camus. Uh, tra- uh, oh, sorry, Camus. Yeah, um, fear gives use to travel. <laughs> I'll put that in the show. Yeah, notes something too. like that. I do that. Yeah. All, even even on the live show, I'm like, basically, it's something like this. I can't promise you it's this person that actually said it or they said it in this way, but in that ballpark. Um, well, maybe it's fear gives value to travel. It's something I've written down, and when Farley said it on your podcast, I thought, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, and then that was why it was funny that Andrew. One of you brought it up in that episode. Oh, uh, right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I like this idea as well that there's different, ways to, there's different ways to travel, just like there's different ways to live your life. So if you travel as a nomad, if you travel for vacation, if you travel for pilgrimage, if you travel for escapism, whatever, like those are, the more you can be, it's not that either one of them is right or wrong, it's that the more intentional you are, going into those travels, the more successful, I'm using air quotes with that, your travel experience will be. Because I actually think there's nothing wrong with, if you wanna go, if you want a luxury vacation, or if you just, you need to sit on a beach somewhere because you have been in a high stress uh, situation and go, go, go. It makes sense to me that you don't wanna do high stress, go, 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 and then go to India. You know, like land in Delhi with no plan, which is what I did, which I don't recommend. I mean, I recommend India, but I don't recommend not having (laughs) your place to stay sorted. Uh, So, were you alone? uh, Actually, no. There, I was with my fiance at the time, but that was the last trip that we took. Okay. (laughs) Um, I don't want to go off on that tangent. I was just curious. No. So most of my most of my travels, I would say, are have been alone, but not all of them. And I think that's there even there, and that's a great example of like solo travel, what you learn and experience versus traveling with a romantic partner versus traveling with a group. Uh, and they're, they're, all, they're all different. And my, my recommendation is always like, do all, try all of them. I think this ties into, again, that sort of like dogmatism, marketingness that that's, you know, now in the travel community as well of like, do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, you're not really a traveler. If you don't do it this way, you're not really experiencing how life should be. That, that applies to travel hacks too. Mm. You know, the, by giving you a solution, then suddenly there's this right way of doing it. You know, and it's hard because, like, I consider myself somebody with like medium knowledge about travel hacking. So this is kind of how this is the problem with being a generalist in general. Well, uh, is that uh, my, like my friend describes me as having been in one too many birthing rooms. Meaning when I just need to like birth my baby because now I get like, I'm just overthinking everything. So for example, now when it comes to travel, like because I know, okay, this route would be best on this 
with this airline on this carrier and or, or when I go to pay for things oh my gosh it's like a crisis every time like do I use my Amex do I use my Sapphire do I use, you so know. these are travel hacking these are travel hacking uh, questions because there's there's a be there's always a better way to do it right and sometimes the better way to do it is to just do something <laughs> and to not keep stressing about it or not stress about like I could have gotten that for free I think about that so often like oh, well if I why you know there's this great deal on this flight but if I also just like saved at my points or whatever and then you just end up not doing anything and that to me is such a metaphor for life as well D does money end up being a big a big carry a lot of weight in philosophical conversations, money and its role in life? That's interesting. Uh, yes, in terms of, I mean, well, you've got, you've got like Karl Marx, Marx philosophy, you've got a lot about like finance in general, um, or you know, talking about economics and disparity, um, and then, and capitalism, even before it was capital C capitalism kind of thing, this idea of stuff, you know, again, to go back to like Epicurus w would say, you really don't need anything, um, but you and know I what? think the Stoics too are, are pretty. Yeah, I mean, yeah. most philosophers are not like, yeah, you need a bunch of stuff <laughs> right. to make you happy, right? Most philosophers <laughs> the are not like. Materialist school of philosophy. Yeah, the answer is make lots of money and then you're happy. Like, look how well that works out for everyone. So in that in that way, philosophy is not as focused on that but I actually wonder and this is something I haven't thought about before if it should be more of the discussion um, because this idea that you know we're all born from the same place and you just you know what is it like you strap your bootstraps or something and like those who who can do and those who can't don't like that's not that's not particularly helpful. But then it's interesting because you look at, you know, you mentioned Stoicism and Epictetus was a slave. That's another reason why it's very popular is like you've got Marcus Aurelius who was an emperor and the slave both sort of touting this hmm. similar idea. Um, so for, and for travel, like money. Well, you, you brought up money. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, yes, it makes such, well, money and then also just like like we li live in the united states our passport can take us pretty much anywhere you know versus there's a lot of people around the world whose passport it's much more difficult to get to places so we can even just start with that uh, accessibility and then you know financially if it wasn't for travel hacking i wouldn't definitely not be able to travel as much as i did i think now it's like 50 countries and even that i say that and it's like for some people that's a lot for some people that's nothing for some people they're judging it because it's like well how much time did you spend in each one it's just all. And, and certainly the financial aspect of travel hacking has made 50 countries possible. Exactly, right? yes. Again, yes. you don't want to overemphasize the, the wonky hackiness of, of something, but it does serve a purpose, which is making it affordable. Absolutely. And I think it's something that, you know, it's like I mean, if you know how to do it well, it will absolutely serve you. Where people get into trouble and where I have also gotten into trouble with it is I got into a lot of credit card debt doing it because I was so looking at the the carrot at the end of the stick of like, you know, oh, well, you've got to have this minimum on your credit card in order to get those 50,000 points or those 100,000 points. And so even if I didn't know how I was going to spend that off with That's how that, you were hacking. Well, that's a large part of it. I mean, credit cards are, for most people, a large part of travel hacking. And again, that's also something very American that a lot of other cultures don't have as much access to. One interesting thing about travel, especially international travel, is that it brings you out of your own cultural assumptions. And then suddenly you're in places where the philosoph either you're in a place 
like uh, maybe Egypt, where religion has not sort of faded from the conversation in the way it has in the U.S., and suddenly Islam is the guiding principle of people's philosophical lives. Um, or you're in places like India or South America, or really any place where it doesn't have a normal Western assumption that people have a different philosophical starting point. Um, how has that informed your thinking about philosophy or pushed back against certain assumptions that you've had about philosophy? Well, one thing that I would say is that I used to think that it, the more exotic the place, that was where I would find the, this culture clash. And one of the things that I've learned is you can leave the state and find that culture clash. I think hmm. we actually have much more, there's a lot more things that living in New York City that I assume that Americans believe that it's not, that's not true. You know, there's, if I go somewhere in the South or in the Midwest uh, and not in a cosmopolitan city, it's like night and day in terms of sort of like guiding values or perspective that we see. So that's something, again, more, more recent for me of realizing don't have to go as far as I thought to, to see this, this difference in perspective. Um, and with philosophy, it's interesting. I guess for me, I'm, you know, you mentioned this sort of ties into what you were asking before about how does somebody get started. I, when I'm studying philosophy, I'm very interested in the, the philosopher behind it. I like learning about what was their childhood like, where were they born and raised, how, you know, what was going on at that time that, that affected their philosophy. Uh, and the, and that, that's, that's incredibly helpful as well. Um, understanding, you know, why the American pragmatism was what it was and why Europeans didn't like it and where we are now with that hmm. is very hmm. interesting to me. Um, or, you know, I'm, I see playwrights as, like, really good playwrights as philosophers, you know, like Chekhov, Shakespeare, and if you look at some, you know, take Chekhov, for example, like, his, the fact that he lived in Russia when he did, that means he has a completely different worldview, and oftentimes the reason why Chekhov has done so poorly here in the United States is because we're trying to put our values and assumptions hmm. on to Chekhov. There's things that we don't even understand about that society you know, and how they would respond to things. And so we'll, we're trying to put our Americanism on it or whatever. It's interesting. I've mainly read his short stories mm. and they seem so modern. I wonder if I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping to the wrong conclusion. No, he was also very, I mean, prolific and the things, there's a reason why, but, but Shakespeare can seem incredibly modern, yeah. incredibly modern with what he was talking about. So it's that they are so, they're such great playwrights because there is something that they do understand about universal humanity that resonates across cultures, but they're the, the specifics and the, about how they reveal that is different culturally. And so the behavior uh, is, could be different, but still reveal a similar human uh, or universal understanding or need. Um, well, there's different starting points too. I remember when I moved to Korea, when I was in my mid-twenties and I realized that the word individualism is sort of pejorative in Korean. You know, that individualism, which we hold high as Americans and maybe as Westerners, is sort of seen as a betrayal of, of community or family in, in Korea. And so even though philosophy can be cross-cultural, a lot of the ways in which we absorb parts of it are framed by, by culture, which is strong. Absolutely. Well, that's why most of, like, Pretty much, I think all the philosophers I've mentioned are Western philosophers, so I haven't even tied in Eastern philosophers. I did have one episode on Avicenna, 
But even that was really hard for me to get wrapped Where's my Abbas head around. From? Uh, he well, it's a Persia. It would be like okay. kind of considered Persian. Uh, it was different boundaries back then. But uh, with I just find it so interesting, like traditional Eastern, like when we think of like Buddhism or Taoism or Taoism, like those philosophies haven't really changed. Like they're 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 very consistent, you know. And a part of that it is about community and family being more important than the individual. Um, and w like one interesting study is on, if you study like so uh, sociopathy, like there's no reason why it should be more prevalent in one society than another, say, because it's, it's sort of genetic, you're born with this. And uh, there's a theory that we have that, that is more prevalent in the US because we are, our philosophy of individualism, like you mentioned, is actually like a petri dish hmm. for narcissism, for uh, psychopathy, for sociopathy. And it's not that those qualities don't exist in, say, China or South Korea, but that the culture does, the philosophy of the culture and the values of the culture do not, um, do not support that. Well, we're sort of nonconformist in the West in our own way. We like to think we are. I feel like the more we try to like cling on to our nonconformists, the more we're being conformist in our nonconformity. Huh. Like I was comparing, I was thinking about this, I think I mentioned in one of my episodes about, it's sort of like the goth kids at school, like they really thought they were the nonconformists and maybe all of us in school thought that. But if you really look, like they didn't just come up with the idea to wear all black and like, you know, model themselves after that character in the breakfast club, like they got that from somewhere and they're conforming to each other. It's a like, uniform. Yep, it's a uniform. And so, and we see, you could look out the window here where we are in New York and you'd see the same thing. The, I was actually, I was just in Williamsburg uh, yesterday giving a talk for something and I was like, holy crap. I, look, it was like, if you were to do a sketch of what people in Williamsburg would dress like, as soon as I got off the subway, it was like that. So we're talking again, <laughs> like microcultures within. I think I saw that on the L the other day, the, mm -hmm. the, the L train that you know you're in Williamsburg when a, when a certain fashion sensibility takes hold. But I wonder, that could almost be, nonconformity could be its own episode of your podcast, simply because I think the idea of nonconformity is so rooted, um, especially in sort of alternative strains of American thought, that it is institutionalized in a very conformist way. I remember um, standing in line for a Nirvana concert, the only one I ever <laughs> went to, in Seattle in 1993. Wow. And there was a documentary filmmaker shooting pictures of things and asking people to, to cheer in unison. And a woman said, don't conform, everybody, don't conform. And I'm thinking, what, we're gonna chant, don't conform, to stick it to the filmmakers? Anyway, my point being that nonconformity, like many of the questions we've discussed, is a sticky thing, that, that nonconformity um, as a social virtue, once it's embraced socially, is a little bit less nonconformist. Well, also, I would argue, like, what is the intention behind the nonconformity? Because I actually do a big part of the happier hour, and it, but because, like I said, to me, philosophy is, you know, practicing philosophy is sort of a rebellious act because it is asking you to question authority. That is, you can't rebel unless there is an authority. And I don't just mean, like, person in charge, because I'm not an anarchist, but I mean, like, what... Uh, like the, the collective group think, you know, to question that. Prescribed ways of thinking. Exactly. And I feel that same way about nonconformity. It can be wonderful, but if you're just being a nonconformist for the sake of, you know, being ornery, which is a very old fashioned term, uh, that to me is boring. That or being is, cool. Yeah. Right? Then it's like, in a way, you're still being, 
just as conformist because you have this idea of what that of what that is. It's sort of like you know when all the male actors want to be Marlon Brando, and in a, but of course, as my acting teacher will point out, uh, they don't want to be Marlon Brando who is singing and dancing guys and dolls. They probably haven't even watched that. They want to. Oh, he was so amazing that. But they want to be the Marlon Brando of Streetcar Named Desire with right. the you know the tank top and the cigarette and all of that. So there's we have these yeah we, we we have these imprints that we like to think that we don't have what's well, funny i heard that people want to be james dean but i heard that james dean was trying to be marlon brando have you heard this i, I, mean, ha I have yeah there, there's a chain in everybody's pose in everybody's pose that you think is connected to one thing mm -hmm. there's a whole there's a whole culture of poses and of course this applies to philosophy too because no, no philosophical idea came in a vacuum mm -hmm. exactly yeah, I mean, it, and it's it's funny because actually right now it's in my head. Whenever I'm, whatever uh, Happier Hour show is coming up next, that's sort of like the philosopher that's in my head. And uh, the, for March, which is the one that I'm working on right now, it's uh, design. And one of the guests is Debbie Millman, and she, she's got a wonderful podcast called Design Matters. And I was trying to think of who to tie her into, and I thought uh, about uh, deconstructionism and, oh my gosh, now I keep wanting to say Diderot, not Diderot. <laughs> <laughs> Derrida? Thank you, Derrida. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and again, that's an example of like, I knew the name, I knew, I'd heard the term deconstructionism, but I'm like, I don't really know what that means. Deconstructivism, oh my gosh, I need more coffee. The point being that, you know, the more that I realized that his contribution was really about the way we use words, like how can we use, we think we're being so original in, the, in our use of words, but every word comes with baggage. Every word comes from every experience, every culture, every, you know, if you say justice, that's a word that's been around a long time, but it's changed meaning. And so then even in philosophy, it's ironic that we use words to describe things and to try to get to a truth, to try to get to clarity. But even those words are not come with things. And then when you look up how to define those words, well, you, those are being defined by more words. Well, it feels like this is undergoing a renaissance, too, because in the political realm, we're suddenly talking about structural racism and privilege and, and the ways of talking as political acts in a way that, that Derrida may have appreciated. So that might be another wing. The people who are reading Stoicism aren't reading Derrida on the structuralist, but um, it's also being discussed, if not in the voice of Derrida, um, that idea of what does language contain and what political, what's the political DNA of talking in a certain way feels like it's also current. Yeah, well, it's, it's something to look at, like when you look at, um, it's like the, when you know, certain groups are described as being like snowflakes and this idea of PC, you know, and it's like, are you, are you just giving lip service and, in order to check off a box or does, do these words really mean anything? To you and uh, and when you're using a word like PC or when you're speaking in in PC bromides, both. Yeah. So what does what does what does PC, PC actually mean to you? And then the terms that you're using. Uh, in fact, we talk about this a lot. This is kind of controversial, but in the acting world, and it's become you know diverse casting. We support diverse casting. Uh, and when I go to meet with agents and casting directors right now, I've literally been told verbatim, "It's a bad time to be a white woman." bad time to be, and I'm like, really? This is really the language that you use? And then they say like, well, don't worry, the pendulum's gonna swing back. And I'm like, this is supposed to be one of the most like actually progressive industries, right? The entertainment industry. 
and this is the way we're talking, like this helps no one. This is bad for everyone. Well, it's almost like they're they're having a meta conversation about the conversation. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and so there's a kernel of of um, of useful ideas happening, and there there are structural inequalities and stuff. And then pretty soon, once you get into the nomenclature of the conversation, then there's this dis distance from the conversation and. Uh, having been in the Christian world, there's there's certain cliches. I think that that any world carries with it, but yeah, then you know suddenly you're putting v virtue in the act of allyship, right, in this um, political world, and then suddenly you use that word, and what does that mean? And right now, diversity. Up to, you can't hear the word diversity now and it not have some sort of either by, like you either feel really great about it or you feel really terrible. Like it doesn't mean what it meant 10 years ago. And I'm not saying that's not like a good thing necessarily. I'm not saying we're not going in the right direction with a lot of things. I'm just saying the words that we use have weight. And that's why I think, for example, I remember I gave a talk to a bunch of lawyers and I had made everybody start with saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And I was like, look at the words that we've been raised to say since we were the beginning. And we're talking about liberty and justice for all. Do we actually know what those words mean? Do we actually agree? Are, like the word God is in there. We're pledging allegiance to this flag. Do we know what actually allegiance means? Do we know? Hmm. So I think that it's just so pervasive in our culture and it makes people very nervous and understandably so to question all of these things we've been taught to believe. You know, when I was vegan um, and I've gone to the dark side of pescatarian, even though like I'm super pro the, the idea of veganism, uh, and I decided to become certified as a holistic health coach in it because I wanted to help other people know how to eat a plant-based diet. I was shocked, shocked by how defensive people were about their food. And I then learned that the study, there's some studies that say people are more defensive about the food that they eat than about the religion that they practice. Hmm. Because it's just so part of it's their culture. It's like saying, well, what my mom fed me growing up was wrong. What we eat at every holiday is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so before you could even say anything like you know even if you just said like no i don't want that about you know the meat that was being passed people immediately like become very defensive so well, there's there's parallel hill parallels here and i apologize to my audience if we're getting a little abstract here but i think it's it's it's, it, it, it's interesting <laughs> that you know there, there's concrete and abstract ways of teach of talking about things and you know the, the vegan argument much like the the pc for lack of a better word argument is you know, people with strong convictions sort of overdoing it. And then suddenly there's people associate the idea, the kernel of an idea with feeling bad or with something that they might disagree with. Um, and so then the way we talk about it, we've really gone on a Derrida rail all of a sudden, uh, but the way we talk about it suddenly isn't just about the content of what we're talking about it, but it's about the way we've talked about it. And so it becomes 40% content and 60% meta. Maybe 40%. I mean, I think that this is where David Hume makes so much sense again. It's all of our emotions with it. And this is also to me where psychotherapy is very related. And it's interesting that the School of Life now has become very psychotherapy based. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but I, I'm now a faculty member for them in New York City. They, where it's, they don't have like uh, workshops, public facing workshops like they do in London and elsewhere, but it's for companies like going in and doing consulting with companies. And it's almost all like psychotherapy based. And 
I, I like seeing the parallels between psychotherapy and philosophy. I now go to a psychotherapist and also I do method acting, which is actually psychological acting for people who aren't familiar. So this idea of our, the, our unconscious mind, our unconscious biases, all of that uh, playing a huge part in our decision-making process and in our vocabulary and our reactions to things and even to feeling like our reactions to one another where we just are like, I don't, this, that tone, that, the way that person speaks, it just grates huh. on me. And we don't realize like, oh, you know, everything is based on familiar patterns to us. We like what's familiar, we seek what's familiar, even if it's not good for us. So maybe it was like your older sister spoke in that way and you now you're sort of unconsciously making that person your, you know, your big sister. We all do it and we all do it all the time. Um, this is going on a, yeah, a tangent, maybe away from philosophy, but I just see them so connected uh, in well, terms of understanding ourselves better. Well, this feels like it ties into travel too, mm -hmm. because when you go to another country, you're not getting an argument that goes against your cultural assumptions. You're just experiencing another culture. And that gives you a more objective lens on your own culture and the water that you swam in and every, everything that you were raised to assume. And you know, it takes a while, you know, because at first travel can just be weird and culture shocky. But eventually, without having the big sister yelling at you, um, travel allows you to embrace new ideas because you see them in a concrete way. That you're, you're not given um, a political lexicon under which you're supposed to understand new ideas, but suddenly you're shocked because you've always thought individualism was great and suddenly people don't see individualism as great as before. Or you see people um, living in a very Hindu way or a very Islamic way or a very Catholic way in a way that gives you perspective on your own culture. So I think there's a million ways to tie everything in, but well, I see a travel connection. It's, or just even that there's an other, you know, that like this is, how often have we heard people say like, oh, I don't like, Indian food because it's weird or like, you know, I'm not going to try, I'm not going to try Ethiopian food. I was in Ethiopia uh, a couple years ago and it's like, because it's weird. Like we've automatically, so what is weird? It's not weird to them. It's not weird to Ethiopians. It's not, you know, Indian food is not weird to Indians. So what do you mean it's weird? You mean it's unfamiliar to you and there's a way for it to not be weird, which is to have it be familiar <laughs> to you. So just this, this idea of the other uh, which again we're seeing very prevalent now in our American society with the way things are being politicized instead of um, seeing how the different cultures interconnect and, uh, and affect one, one another because we are in a, we it's a global world now, it's a global economy. You cannot pretend like you don't know that there are other cultures out there. You know, after two seasons going on three of doing this, what have you learned? What's your take home? Because it feels like you're not coming to this as the fusty professor at the, at the lectern, that you are also going on a journey. So what, what are you, what's your take home after two seasons? It's a great question. I, what I have learned is that each philosopher and each philosophical idea has something helpful and it has something that I disagree with. And both are okay. Like we can, we can live with more than one idea uh, or more than one feeling or belief at a time. And so, it, you know, whoever, whoever I'm focusing on that month, I almost tend to become like their champion, you know, like, I'm like, yes, Karl Popper. And then I'm sad later when I read like why philosophers don't like that, you know, 
that philosopher or whatever, but it exists for every single one. And, uh, and so I, I've really learned that differing perspectives can all still be valuable and can all still have mistakes. I mean, Aristotle got so much wrong. He got so much wrong. Does that mean we shouldn't read Aristotle or think that he contributed greatly to society? No. I mean, if you look at that for pretty much anything in history, none, most philosophers were not super keen on women, for example, you know? But you, if you throw out the entire thing because parts of it uh, are no longer correct, then, then I fear we lose, we lose a lot. So learning to live more in the gray area would probably be the simplest way to uh, explain what I've learned from the seasons of the happier hour. That's interesting because we do see, seem to live in a political moment where the slightest taint of impurity means the whole thing has to go out. We, it's so dangerous. We live in such a polarized time right now. And it just means that we are wi less willing to ask more questions, less willing to be wrong less willing to be Socratic like I mean what I one of the things in the episode that I loved about Socrates what the professor pointed out was like Socrates he wanted to understand more about knowledge and so he was like hey I'm gonna go to the people that really know about stuff I'm gonna go to the military commander and ask him about courage I'm gonna go to the religious zealot and ask him about faith I'm gonna go to you know like nowadays you'd be like I'm gonna go to the celebrity couple and ask them about love and realizing that the people that are often the most um, dogmatic, the most vocal about their way, are often just afraid to admit what they don't know. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Monica McCarthy's Happier Hour podcast, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs> <laughs>